It's the final round of Battle of the Bromances. This week, Austin and I each chose a movie strategically, which means we watched two films that I don't think either of us actually liked that much. But that's how you got to play the game sometimes. In one corner, we have the man Austin would go gay for, Ryan Reynolds, trying to keep the genre of the romantic comedy alive with the proposal. And in the other, we have the man I want to adopt me, Kurt Russell, starring in Quentin Tarantino's film Death Proof, which Tarantino described as his worst film. Mediocrity? Well, let's find out. <laughs> 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. <laughs> Hey, welcome to I Dig This Movie. I'm Keir Seward, an independent filmmaker and photographer, as well as a guy who thinks The Shining is really overrated. Come at me, bro! Oh, you're intentionally trying to incite my anger. I'm Austin Hayden-Smith, philosopher, actor, writer, producer, etc., etc., etc. And he's only saying this because I was raving about it on social media this week. I think that The Shining is fan-motherfucking-tastic. Why do you dislike it? It's mostly because it's really boring. It's really long. Do you just think it's not scary or something? I don't find it scary at all. I mean, I think for me, the thing that I think is so fascinating is I'm a philosopher more than anything. And so for me, I think it's just really fascinating as a metaphor for the dark recesses of the potentials that exist within the human psyche. So that's why I think it's so fascinating. There are all those themes with, you know, Theseus and the Minotaur and the maze and the idea that there are memories that are stored in the hotel and all of those things. And is, I it, think it, that is it the, the poster idea of, of the Minotaur? And, is that what really excites you about it? You know, no, all, I think all... that's bullshit. Room, no, room 237 tries a little too hard to see some shit in there. But it's it's the idea of the maze is clearly a labyrinthine motif that, that has some sort of, you know, intertextual crossover with you know that that story but no room 237 is fun but i think it's ultimately just supposed to be that fun what's, what's it's kind of full of shit what's the guy in the in the furry costume blowing the guy what's that a metaphor for <laughs> yeah. uh it could be just about like transgression it could be about some of the perversions that exist within the psyche see i think the hotel is actually a metaphor for the psyche as such. So all the stuff that's popping up in that, like the skeletons and the cobwebs, those are skeletons in the closet and and various other dark things that exist within there. And then each of the characters are just like moments, let's say, of psychological development. You know, the, the innocence of the child. And, uh, and then you have Jack who kind of represents the idea of repression and trauma and things like that. And so all of them kind of fit within that and that idea. So then... The furry dude blowing the guy is the idea of perversion. Because, you know, it's written and filmed in the 80s, 1980, so late 70s, even 1980. So the idea of perversion and sexuality and things like that that kind of exist in the mind. Or perversion is still a judgment. But the idea of, like, experimenting with sexual proclivities, let's say, that exist within the mind. All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. It does indeed. Okay, so this week we are finishing Battle of the Bromances, a three-round fight between Austin and I's chosen man crushes, Ryan Reynolds and Kurt Russell. Uh, round one saw Reynolds trounce Russell uh, as we pitted Mississippi Grind against Tango and Cash. Round two saw Russell come roaring back with Big Trump and Little China, putting up a great fight against Buried. So as it stands, I'm in the lead by half a point. We are <sighs> 151 to 150.5. So, Austin, 
How does it feel to know you're going to lose this week? I mean, have you are, are you looking forward to your Uva Bowl challenge? I'm not going to lose because I'll tell you why in a minute. See, see, I'm just like, you know, you can you can rail all you want against Death Proof, man, but Russell's legit in it. And anyway, as previ- as as mentioned a moment ago, uh, what does the loser win? Absolutely nothing. These <laughs> nobody has ever gotten anything out of winning any of these except a feeling of smugness. But the loser has to endure a marathon of Uva Bowl films known as the Modern day Ed Wood, the, uh, the, the, the German auteur of such films as House of the Dead, Alone in the Dark, and uh, Postal. So, um, Didn't you be write fun. some essay when you were in film school about auteur theory and Uwe Boll, or no? No. I mean, I've written, I've written essays on auteur theory. I never talked about Uwe Boll specifically. But in theory, I would say Uwe Boll does constitute an auteur. It's just, again, it's a misunderstanding of what auteur means. Auteur doesn't mean you're a good filmmaker. It just means that you have a clear visual stamp. So this week, obviously, we are doing Death Proof and The Proposal. So, Austin, what shall we do first? I'm leaving it up to you. Let's, uh, let's start with The Proposal. I need you around this weekend. You have a problem with that? No, I, I, I just my grandmother's 90th birthday, so I, I was gonna go home and it's fine. I'll cancel it. Is that your family? Yes. They tell you to quit? Every single day. Margaret Tate's office. This isn't about my second raise, is it? Margaret, your visa application is denied. You're being deported. Deported? It's not like I'm an immigrant or something. I'm from Canada. If you're deported, you can't work for an American company. If there was any way at all that we could make this thing work. Pardon the interruption. Um... I understand the predicament, but there is something that you should know. We are, uh, we're getting married. Who, who is getting married? You and I. You and I are getting married. Yes. We are. Getting married. We are getting married. Yes. Can't fight a, can't fight a love yeah. like ours. So, uh, uh, are we good? Make it all legal and we'll put this whole thing behind us. I'm not gonna marry you. <laughs> if you don't, you'll be on the street all alone looking for a job. Have the two of you told your parents about your secret love? We're going to their place this weekend. Oh, where's that? Alaska. Alaska. Where's Andrew's room? He'll sleep in here with you. We love to snuggle, don't We're we, honey? Huge snugglers. Breakfast for the happy couple. Oh my God, what is that? I'm sorry. What is it? It's the morning. How can you be around someone that made your life so miserable? Sweetie, honey. Some proposals change you. Why don't you get married here tomorrow? Let's see a kiss. Why don't you just do it really fast? For better or worse. Give her a real kiss. Sandra Bullock. Hello? Ryan Reynolds. The proposal. Maybe a tad uh, loose in certain areas. I'm a bit chesty to begin with. It's like an Easter egg hunt. There they are. Yeah, that's <laughs> All right. So, The Proposal is a romantic comedy that stars Ryan Reynolds and Sandra Bullock. Ryan Reynolds is a an aspiring 
book editor, but he is currently serving as an assistant to the managing editor, played by Sandra Bullock. And it turns out that, and she's just a raging biatch, it turns out that she's going to be deported because she's from Canada, and she, which is funny because Ryan Reynolds is actually Canadian. Um, I mean, I don't know if that's funny, but it, information. Uh, so it turns out she's going to be deported, so she basically, in a panic, tells her bosses, which I guess would be like the owners, if you will, of this really popular book publisher, that she actually and her assistant that she's been horrible to for all of these years are engaged to get married, and then they get excited and they say, wonderful, just make it happen, make it legal so that you can stay in the country. So then it turns out that they, uh, oh, so then basically they have to kind of do the kind of bullshit, elaborate, lying scheme thing to prove to the government that they actually are in a relationship and that they're not just trying to scheme to keep her in the government because she's being threatened to be deported. So the funny, is it funny? The in the intent to be funny element is when they go to Alaska, Sitka, Alaska, this tiny little Alaskan village, I guess, to go for Ryan Reynolds' Gammy's like 90-something birthday or something like that. And she has to, uh, Sandra Bullock has to go with and accompany him as his fiance. And of course, the family have been told for years that she was this terrible demon dragon lady. And so it's this. So it's supposed to be a sort of comedy errors, of course, as there's a clash of cultures, this uptight, pain-in-the-ass New York executive meets this sweet, welcoming, down-to-earth Alaskan family that's also replete with daddy issues that Ryan Reynolds has with his dad, who is coach for all y'all motherfuckers that used to watch And, and Mr. Incredible. Wait. And Mr. Incredible. Craig T. Nelson. Um... So yeah, then of course there's the ex-girlfriend that's there, there's the dog that the executive is awkwardly has encounters with because she's uptight and clearly can't handle animals, and then there's the grandma that kind of teaches the executive to loosen up and get in touch with your wild side, you know, to the window, to the walls, to the sweat drop down your balls scene, and then of course there's... You know, the real feelings that emerge even in the midst of this fake performance. And what the fuck else do we say? They, uh, they bump into each other naked at one point, And that was like the thing that was like in all the publicity. It's like Ryan Reynolds and Sandra Bullock had to do a nude scene. <laughs> I will say this. Sandra Bullock looks fine Sandra Bullock always in this looks movie. Fine. No, dude, this is a different level. Like she looks bang. I mean, I... Vintage Sandra Bullock is why you were sleeping, Sandra Bullock. So you know she's never gonna look. Yeah, as but that's she's she's cute in that. In Miss Congeniality, she's pretty. In this, for some reason, she is bang. Maybe you just like mean women. Apparently. <laughs> so okay, what do you want to say, Kier? I mean, Ryan Reynolds, he's charming. His body is banging. He's, he's like, uh, I mean, that's the thing, too. I'm like, that is not the body of a New York overworked assistant. <laughs> that is the body of a man who has some gym time. <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, exactly. So his body's banging. He looks good. He's charming. He's got the smolder. He, uh, you know, I, I he's love not how really you're just like, any... you're just railing off the, uh, the, the, yeah. the, the, the points. You're like, yeah. Yeah, his body's great. Yeah, smolder, his hair, he's got hair. His he's got hair. charisma. Yeah, his hair is average, as it always is. We know that's going to be the weak category for him, but that's okay. His clothes are looking good in this because, you know, he's got to rock a suit and shit. Um, I, I'm just trying to think. I, I know I know you're going to 
you're going to really, like, roll your eyes at me about this, and you're going to say I'm trying to, like, weigh the scales, but... You are. I'm ready for it. I think I've already, he looks I've been on autopilot this. in this film, if I'm being honest. Like, I think he kind of looks like he's, like... I, I feel like he's not giving it 100%. I kind of feel like neither one of them look like they're giving it 100%. <laughs> you know what's funny? I wondered that exact same thing, actually, as I watched this. I was like... Like, as an actor, you know when it's a good script yeah. and when it's a bad script. And you know when you've been in good films and you've been in bad films. And I wonder at what point are you just working for the money I guess you know at what point are you just your agent said take this you're doing somebody a favor it looks fun maybe you wanted to work with the other actor or the director or the producer or whatever but you're not you're kind of phoning it in a little see here's here's the thing right there's like on like a certain level right I think like I like the setup of this movie. It feels very sort of classic 90s romantic comedy where it's kind of slightly ludicrous and heightened, but also like vaguely enough relatable and believable that you can still kind of like get into it. Um, I mean, I love Sandra Bullock. I like Ryan Reynolds. They seem like a bit of a weird combination, but, you know, fuck it. I'll go with it. But the first 30 minutes of this movie, I'm kind of into it. And they got this whole kind right. of like Devil Wears Prada light, which is saying something because Devil Wears Prada is hardly heavy um, thing going. And <laughs> it just it's everything to me goes off the rails once they go to Alaska. It's like it's yeah. it's like nobody ever thought beyond the pure setup, like the setup works. And then after mm. that, it's like everything it's like it's like nobody really figures out what they're supposed to do once they're in alaska and it doesn't help right because i i I think the movie makes several really really dumb decisions one of which is to make him some fucking rich boy from alaska who's like his dad built an empire out of like local general stores in like some tiny island place that clearly is filmed in massachusetts because it looks like fucking massachusetts doesn't look like alaska and it just feels so badly thought out and then i'm supposed to kind of like get into this oh the his drama is that he doesn't want to take over his family's empire he wants to go be a book publisher in in new york and i'm i don't know i'm just like maybe what maybe it's, what first first world problems is that what you're saying it's not even the first world problems thing because i mean I've, here's the thing okay like most romantic comedies are also, to a certain extent, lifestyle porn. It's like you watch, say, something like The Devil Wears Prada, which I guess actually Devil Wears Prada is not really a romantic comedy. But it, OK, like so you watch, say, something like um, like even like uh, My Best Friend's Wedding. There's a point where literally it's like, oh, he's marrying into a family where they own a baseball team and they're just like hanging out in like the owner's boxes and all of this sort of stuff. And, you know, it's, it's like you accept to a certain extent that one of the reasons people go to this movie is because they want to watch people wear, look uh, look pretty in nice clothes mm. and go to uh, fancy, expensive places and have a certain uh, amount of lifestyle porn. And that's fine. Like How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, you get yeah. that as well. Yeah. And okay. everybody I'm lives in... That's imp- interesting. You have all of these kind of like singles in New York living in impossibly nice apartments. You know, it's like it's... Th- there's... You know, it's, it's not about realism. And partially that's the thing, because the more realism you put on it, the more you become disconnected from how stupid the setup is, because most romantic comedies have kind of silly setups. So that's all fine. I don't necessarily have a problem with that. But I just feel that the thing the film is going for is this idea is it's it's like the classic 
you know, Doc Hollywood thing where it's like person from the big city comes into the small town and they they learn right. more about themselves from these simple country folk. And you're kind of like, yeah, but these are like fucking billionaire Alaskans who like have <laughs> insane amount of money for no reason and live in a part of Alaska that looks like, you know, like it should be filled. In. They're, they're like the Massachusetts wasps of Alaska. It just doesn't feel well, like the moral of the story is that being a rich person in Alaska is better than being a rich person in New York. Yeah, and I think that's the weird thing, is that ultimately, <laughs> I'm kind of like... I'm, and I think part of the problem is, honestly, it's not that Ryan Reynolds and Sandra Bullock aren't charming actors. I'm not sure they're like a combo where I'm like, oh, I really want to see these two together. I mean, I think it's interesting that she's clearly quite a bit older than him because it's not something you see in romantic comedies a lot. But I'm also really distracted by the fact that I'm not totally sure if the film's trying to suggest to me that they... Because they clearly can't be the same age because he's her assistant. So I'm kind of like... Is the film trying to play off? It's the film's very coy about what age, what the age difference is, because it's even that point where like she gets off the plane and Betty White's like, "Oh, she's not a, she's not really a girl, is she?" Uh, yeah, it's like, yeah, where's your girl? Oh, it's not a girl. It's you know, and the implication is that's a woman. And then, yeah, and then it doesn't help too that then your down home country girl that like is like the alternative is 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 played by like a Swedish supermodel. You know, it's it's yeah, that's true. I mean, it's like Malin Ackerman is not just a normal girl from Alaska, and that's the thing is like <laughs> every kind of like light decision, like you needed a girl next door type, not a kind of smoking hot kind of like woman who looks like she could be advertising, you know, uh, you know, could be in a beer commercial or something like that. You need. And I and I think that's the weird thing about this movie is that it makes a lot of bad choices in the in the smallest areas. Like it's it's like it's like it takes for granted the you know, the the audience engagement on certain things. And I think that's Mm. it. I think it needed more of a kind of actual I mean, I'm not saying like I think you can still do their them being fairly well off. I think you can do still do lifestyle point. But I mean, I mean, fuck's sake, if you've been to the Pacific Northwest, then, you know, you've seen a lot of those big houses. Then they, they're like they're made of like they have like those kind of styles of like those sort of like expensive looking log cabins with lots, lots of wood everywhere and everything. So it's like it's like watch like Twin Peaks and, you know, and they've got like some big expensive houses in there and you know what the, that sort of style is. That's going to look far more authentic than this giant, like weird Massachusetts mansion they've got there. Yeah. Lifestyle porn also doesn't require some sort of comparable measure of wealth. It, I mean, it could just mm. be the difference between big city life and, you know, being out in nature and getting back to yeah. the beauty of what it means to be alive and that that's that that's the fantasy that we live with her more than anything. It is hard. It does detract a little bit in in a way that she's going to a wealthy environment because then it's like, well, so what is she really getting in touch with? So what is it about the small town mentality that she's really, she finds her appeal in? Like she's still, there's still an an element of superficial corporate success that doesn't really challenge the New York lifestyle on all fronts. Like, yeah, it challenges it in some ways, but maybe not as radical as it could have been, where if they were much more down-to-earth, much less, you know, upper class, in the, the, they're definitely in the top 1%, you know? And that would have provided maybe a different... It would have provided, like, more of... Like, higher stakes with her getting in touch with 
nature and getting in touch with herself and silence and kind of withdrawal and being unplugged from the craziness of the city or urban life. Well, it feels too kind of like this. The the problem is too that it it really feels like nobody's ever been to Alaska, you know, because there's nothing in this that feels like you get any kind of flavor of like what it would have been like for Ryan Reynolds' character growing up, or like how like he, he never feels like authentically like some kid from Alaska or something like that. It feels like you know mm. it just it, it again it feels they might as well if if literally all you said was. Um, Oh, they're they live in they live on an island off the east coast. You know, you would have you wouldn't have to change anything. Everything would look exactly the same. No, the only reason that Alaska plays as a joke, or at least it attempts to play as a joke, is because there's that scene when they're in the immigration officer's office, and it's like Alaska, and she, it's like this. It's supposed to be this crazy, wild completely different experience to what this high-powered executive is used to. And Alaska, I think, in our minds is kind of, we think of igloos and snow leopards or whatever. And so yeah. that's where it, it's supposed to it's supposed to have its its most, like, comedic effect. But then again, you're absolutely right. As they show up and then it turns out that he's freaking multi-multi-millionaire, then it's kind of like, well, wait, but then all of that, that buildup that led to the comedic effect of it being this crazy you know, opposition to what she's used to sort of disintegrates a little bit because it's not all that different. When it's interesting because this film's actually been remade a couple of times. Uh, it's been remade by the Chinese. Um, it was remade in Malaysia. Um, and I think that, so I think there is something inherent in this concept that's interesting. I just think this film really doesn't follow through on what's interesting. I mean, literally my interest in it just nosedived after the first 30 minutes. And it was weird because yeah. I'd watched it before and I remember thinking it was fine. And maybe it was that expectation of thinking that it was fine that when I watched it this time, it was so deeply underwhelming, like to the point where... Yeah, which is so funny because I had the opposite experience. Mm. I remembered it being terrible so me watching it this time, it wasn't bad as I remembered. Mm. <laughs> so it's kind of like we almost meet in the middle, you know? <laughs> but it is really like that thing of like, I feel like there's just so much filler and most of it's not that funny. Like the whole sort of like... The stripper scene? Yeah, the stripper scene. That dude? Again, it's, and then, it, yeah. again, it's like, it feels like it's being written by someone in their 50s who thinks they're being naughty. It just, it, it feels so like, mm. and I suppose maybe that's the scene. It is like a bunch of like middle-aged women who think they're doing something naughty with that. But it's just like, I don't know. And also just like, yeah, it's just, it, it, it's just like, it, it doesn't, I don't really kind of feel like I know what the character's like central arc is supposed to be. So Sandra Bullock, who's once again an orphan, like she was in, um, in, uh, while you were sleeping, she kind of like, it's like, is she supposed to feel like she bonded to the family in some kind of a way? And that's why, like, and I, I mean, I don't know. It's like, here's the weird thing is I kind of weirdly at the end, I want, I'd, I'd want Ryan Reynolds to do well in his job or whatever, but I'm just sitting there going like, I'm not sure I want these two people to get together. Like, I just don't really like care. I don't really see how this relationship I don't think they build enough of their bond to make you at the end. Of I would kind of rather him go back and work with his father and be an independent book publisher in Alaska and get together with Malin Ackerman. Yeah. 
I mean, I'm just kind of like, <laughs> it's like I just, I don't really see how this relationship's going to work is kind of the thing. And then it's like kind of going to be like, okay. So it's like, so, so, so uh, credits roll. We're moving on from like the edge. She's, she's suddenly like, so this is my, this is my new uh, boyfriend. And uh, he's, he's now going to be promoted to publisher. Uh, and, you know, and, and I'm kind of like, well, this seems like a bit of a conflict of interest. Yeah. Uh. What movie is that that I'm thinking? It reminds me of Cocktail a little bit when Tom Cruise meets the rich woman on the island. Yeah. And then she kind of brings him back to groom him. No, it's different. It's different. But the tension is there where you kind of see – like to me that's much more realistic, right? Yeah. The the sort of younger guy, the successful woman. What happens is he's not going to necessarily fit in with her because she's got all of these – rich dick friends and they're going to treat him like shit because they're going to see through all of that nonsense and that's going to cause tension. Like that seems to be much more realistic than this fantasy that we're meant to presume takes off as soon as the credits roll. I think also, I think potentially Ryan Reynolds needed to have like some kind of like Pygmalion like arc where he starts off being this really like schlubby put upon guy who's just completely destroyed by this woman. And then once he's back in Alaska in his element, he starts to like, you know, feel like more confident again or something happens that changes him in some kind of a way. He needs like an Anne Hathaway in The Devil Wears Prada. Like, you know, she needs to be able to mm. see him in a new light. But the thing is, like, he's already like a sarcastic asshole to begin with from like the beginning. Yeah, you know, like sarcastic asshole that he's a bad person. He's a sarcastic guy you know i don't yeah. it's like it's again part he's already got some confidence he's already confident in himself i think that's, that's part of, of the is. problem is that you can't buy ryan reynolds as some guy who's like not going out and crushing it in the new york like club scene like like you know you, you feel like when he's not yeah. with sandra bullock he is off getting laid left and right because all the man has to do is pop the shirt off and he's like look at me i'm a fucking adonis like what like you don't want a piece of this it's like i'm fucking married to yeah. blake lively i used to be married to scarlett johansson like what you think you think you got anything over me it's like yeah if anything yeah, you and know, he does just he does just ooze that charisma and, is, and charm with ease and this is like so. and and this is like ryan reynolds on like the way up he's only getting sexier you know whereas like sandra bullock her stock's going down so it's like it's it's like i'm, I'm just i'm just saying it doesn't really seem like it's I, I it he doesn't register as this as the guy that Sandra Bullock wouldn't kind of be like oh he's a kind of he's a sexy dude like as in like she just wouldn't notice so do you him think do you, I mean do you think there's partly just a big casting problem like it would be better if it were somebody that weren't so attractive and charming and confident and sort of complete let's say as the type of character that he's supposed to end up being at the beginning that that I mean maybe even Ryan Reynolds himself can't do it right now. Yeah. But th- there would be somebody else that would – I'm trying to think of, an, of another actor that would – I mean, I don't know. I mean, even someone like a, a fucking Jonah Hill or something like yeah. that. He just popped into my head. The, you know, somebody who isn't – like, I mean, thinner thinner Jonah Hill too, you I know? Mean, I mean, like, I was thinking maybe like say like one of the things that I like about Set It Up, which is kind of like I – think, I think the proposal suffered a lot from the fact that I watched Set It Up recently, which was, which was really wonderful. Is like Glenn Powell is a handsome dude, but like – you can like put him in like if you watch it, if you look at him and say like I don't know like um, Hidden Figures where he's playing like uh, John Glenn, he looks like a sexy motherfucker. Like he's a 
fucking sexy astronaut in that movie. But like, yeah. you put him in, set it up. You kind of give him a kind of dorky haircut and put him in these kind of baggy suits, and he looks. He kind of looks normal. And that's the thing is like they needed someone who kind of looked normal. Ryan Reynolds never looks normal because he's tall. Yeah. He's fucking like built, and he just and he's his face is just fucking gorgeous. So it's like it's like he's yeah. you know it's like Ryan Reynolds is like you know your perfect example of like what a man sh- of like of like what like a perfect man is. So it's like. I, I, you know, again, he's like one of those guys that it's really hard to cast sometimes, I think, because of the fact that he doesn't he doesn't fit into, you know, he it, it, he's a guy who in, in regular life you just look at and go like, oh, my God, that's a fucking handsome dude. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I wonder if and I know that this is what they're trying to do. Right. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to say that his character arc is ultimately about. Maybe the reason that he hasn't gotten ahead... Well, no, I mean, he has no real flaws at the beginning, except for we get the reveal of his daddy issues, but that doesn't prevent him from being successful in his life. The only reason he's not successful is because she's a bitch. So maybe there's a, a, a fundamental lack in the writing of the character that he doesn't actually have a character flaw that he needs to overcome in order yeah. to become the editor that he wants to be, right? Because he doesn't actually been... overcome any weaknesses, when I think you're supposed to read that he's been so kind of like browbeaten by her that he's got like no self-confidence anymore. But like Ryan Reynolds doesn't come off as not self-confident, you know. So you no, and not only that, but the his... only he doesn't he's not it's not like his confidence is what gets him the job. It's a bribe that yeah. gets him the job. Yeah. Based on a situation I... of desperation that she yeah. requires. And in that moment, it is interesting how quickly all of a sudden he exploits the situation and becomes very powerful where it seems as before he was kind of sheepish and wouldn't stand up for himself and then all of a sudden he realizes he has the power before they even go to Alaska when she realize or when he realizes that she needs him and he says okay well if, if you're if I'm going to agree to marry you then you are going to make me editor and I mean I mean this it's movie not like he overcomes feel- anything in order to earn that I mean this movie feels like an elevator pitch that nobody really ever fleshed out and that's it, because it's yeah. kind of like it's like once they get to that's my, it's why one of the reasons why I think the setup is works, but otherwise it just runs out of steam because they've not really figured out how these character how these character dynamics work. And I think part of the difficulty with something like a romantic comedy is it's it's so star driven. So the idea is then yeah. you have to fit it around the stars. So it's like they've cast Ryan Reynolds in it. I mean, what are they going to do? They can't like. You know, at a certain point, you're locked into the Ryan Reynolds type. You can't, like, make Ryan Reynolds suddenly seem like a dork. Because, you know, it, so right. it's... And I, I think... I think Here's an interesting question. What do you think this movie would be like if the genders were reversed? Oh. Uh, so it's a man who's a book... An older the managing man. editor. An older man... He's got he a young assistant. A young assistant. He's an asshole. He needs her. I, well, I'll be completely honest. I think in 2018, you'd have a hard time making this film considering yes. the sort of sensitivity with gender dynamics right now. Uh, but let's just say, what is this? 2009, this, is like, what, this six came years out. Ago? Oh, my God. What, nine years ago. Um, I'm trying to think of another film where they do this. Uh... I don't know. I don't know if it would work. I feel like... What do you think? I think this film becomes 
really kind of creepy if you reverse the genders, you know? Uh, because I think there's something that's much more aggressive about essentially a, a, a man sort of forcing marriage on a subordinate in order to... That's uh, what I was just thinking, yeah. I mean, that's why you cannot make... you. Absolutely. I mean, all of the issues with regards to power dynamics in the workplace and related to the Me Too movement and whatnot, you could not get this film made right now. Um, yeah, I don't know. Let me ask you this. Do you, I mean, do you, do you think you could still movie? get it made under the current? Do you still do you think you could do you think you could still get it made under the current gender dynamics? As in, uh, like, I think if, so. As it I is think in so. the film, yeah. could you still make it today? Yeah, I think so because mm. there's still because it's not as as sensitive in the other direction. It's no. sensitive for older men in a position of power, but I think this would kind of it still retains that element of it's not as threatening or harmful. I think you could still make it today. I think I'm not I saying that that's a good idea or not, but I and I'm not saying that there isn't a, an inherent contradiction there. I'm just talking about whether or not the culture would allow it. I think you could get it made. Well, and I think I think the funny thing is too that if you um. If you, uh, I, I also think that as long as Scarlett like, Johansson isn't playing like a black woman or something like that, then sorry. <laughs> oh, I think, I mean, that said, I think there'd also be quite a few people who would uh, not be so uh, up for the idea of um, uh, a bunch of white people cheering on this sort of comical Mexican uh, male stripper slash waiter slash shopkeeper slash minister. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, there are definitely a lot of. It'd be really interesting if you did a whole podcast on films that you could not make anymore, right? (laughs) Um, Okay, so do you hate this movie? I don't hate it. It just, it was very blah. And that's the thing, too. So here's here's my, yeah, so, no, no, this is what's weird. So here's, here's the thing. If you were giving it just simply based on either a fresh or a not fresh rating, what would you give it? I think I'd give it not fresh. Not fresh, okay. Yeah. But let's say if you were doing it on a 1 to 100 scale, would this be in like the high 40s, mid 40s, or would you even go lower? I think 40s. I think it's like, okay. it's it's kind of like, it's not aggressively bad. It's kind of aggressively mediocre, if you know what I mean. It's like That's the weird thing, yeah. It feels like it's kind of a lot of warmed over ideas from other scripts all kind of Frankensteined into a movie that had a good setup and not much else. I mean, that's the thing is I suppose yeah. the thing that really the thing that I I really thought is that Sandra Bullock and Ryan Reynolds don't seem like a particularly good match for each other. Not in the sense that they're not both good-looking and charismatic people. It's just I don't think Part of the thing is with a romantic comedy is that you root for the coupling, that you say, I want these two people to be together. So it's even like, say, a movie like French Kiss, which is a movie that's filled with all sorts of like overworked, you know, sort of like uh, narrative gears just grinding, trying to make things uh, work in ways that, that really don't make a lot of sense. Kevin Klein and Meg Ryan are two really charming people that they you kind of like you enjoy seeing their dynamic together. So it kind of works. But like in this case, I'm just like I'm not rooting for these two people to be together. I mean, I probably don't want her to be. It's like the weird thing is I'm not even sure I give a shit if she gets deported or not, because she's kind of (laughs) horrible for most of the film. And then, like, I'm supposed to just feel sorry for her. It's not like she does much to kind of make herself feel charming or nice. I'm just supposed to feel bad for her. So it's it's I'm kind of. So you don't of, think we're supposed to fall in love with her 
in the same way that Ryan Reynolds does. We start to see her humanity come out a little bit, and we start to see that she's just broken, and we start to empathize with her, and then we start to see her come to life. That doesn't happen for you in this film at all. No, I wouldn't really say it does. It's like, and I, I'm yeah. surprised, because, you know, I'm obviously a big Sandy Bullock fan. Um, and, yeah, I was just kind of like, no, I'm not really... Again, I just, again, it's, I'm not rooting for this coupling. I don't want, I don't particularly sit there and go, like, I want desperately for her and Ryan Reynolds to get together. And then I find the whole um, drama between him and Craig T. Nelson really forced, like, this whole kind of father-son dynamic of, like, oh, they don't talk because Craig T. Nelson wants him to take over the family business. And Ryan Reynolds is committed to being a book publisher in new york book and, nerd yeah. yeah and i'm especially to you know it also doesn't help to that kind of like this isn't the best time for the publishing industry or anything like that but it's like it's like <laughs> one of the things that i always hate in movies too is how i feel like there's a really lazy screenwriting trope which is like you take Basically, because most people are kind of writing from the idea of, oh, these are my dreams and these are my wants, so they can't make them a writer. So they make them an architect or they make them a publisher or they make them something which is basically, you know, wannabe filmmaker, but, you know, you it's, it's a different creative sphere. And that's it. Like, mm. the film's got nothing to say about publishing. It knows nothing about publishing. And it's just kind of like it's publishing is just insert. I want my daddy to be proud of me because I wrote a movie. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's actually really interesting. And and I so let's let's talk less about the movie now, and let's transition to talking about my boy. I, I will say so, I, I, I want to say one more thing. One more thing quickly. Okay, okay. I think Mary Steenburgen is hotter as an older woman than she was when she was younger. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, I am no. totally on board with that. She's got a great body she's, too. I'm like for. She's like in her sixties and she's like in great shape. I was like, "Holy shit, man!" She's she's watched she's she's in. Um, I've been watching Last Man on Earth as well, and she's in that. And it's just like I'm also like it's it's the Southern accent as well. I just find I find Mary Steenburgen very charming. Hey, and well, okay, if we're gonna be uh, give equal due to both genders here, I also gotta say that I kind of have a little tiny bit of a thing that you have with Kurt Russell with Craig T. Nelson because I used to watch Coach a lot as a kid and I kind of, maybe this is one of the reasons why the film is a little bit more interesting to me too is because I got some daddy issues and I kind of see him as, he reminds me a lot of my dad actually in his physical appearance. So I'm kind of like, I mean, I think think there's definitely an element of Craig T. Nelson (laughs) where he kind of reads as like your, your classic American dad. He's like the dad you would order out of like, you know, the, yeah, the, the, you know, uh, the Timberland catalog or something like that. You know, he's, (laughs) especially in this, he's wearing those heavy, those heavy wool sweaters and yeah. yeah. I mean, you just, he he just, he just feels like, but I, I feel like that's the funny thing is I feel like Craig T. Nelson's like entire career post coach is just playing your classic American dad. Like he does it a lot, you know? So it's, it's, I mean, I, 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 you know, I mean, even obviously to voicing the, you know, Mr. Mr. Incredible. So, I mean, I, I, I you know, I, I agree with you. I just really don't think he's, I think he's given a very, very thankless role. I actually. Oh, his character liked, is, yeah, it's, there's not much going on. I liked um, Dennis O'Hare as the immigration agent. Um, yeah. Um, I thought he was good. I, I, the, I didn't, Betty, I didn't like Betty White. No, I know. Ne- I've never liked the whole 
Betty White, I'm a I'm a sassy granny um, thing. It's 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 always bugged me. And then yeah. Malin and the Ackerman scene when she is doing cl- that. No, no, go ahead. And Malin Ackerman is again. It's just such a thankless role. She's just supposed to be bland, idealistic ex-girlfriend. Right, right, right. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about Ryan. What? Uh, yeah. What do you think? I mean, you said you think that he's kind of phoning it in a little bit in this. Movie. It feels like it. I mean, it's not that. I mean, but here's I, I think that's the problem is I don't think he's given a lot of meat to work with. And I think this is the kind of role. I mean, the, the sort of charming romantic lead is kind of the thing he can do in his sleep. And I think he's kind right. of doing it in his sleep. And I just don't I don't think there's much dimension <laughs> to this character. And I think it's actually something that really hampers the movie a lot is that you're kind of left. It's like the movie just relies on the fact that, hey, Ryan Reynolds is a really charismatic guy. So that's fine. We don't really need to think because he's charismatic and people like him. And I, I kind of think that that's the problem is that and I think that's the problem quite often with certain Ryan Reynolds characters is that you're kind of like, you're Ryan Reynolds. What's your fucking struggle? Like, why do I sympathize mm. with you as, as a character? What, yeah, what's your and, flaw? And it is frustrating when you see what he can do in a film like Buried. And then when you also see what he can do in a film like um, Mississippi Grind, because Mississippi Grind is interesting. We talked about that quite a bit. It's almost like the perfect expansion on this is van wilder what what did we say van wilder 10 years later yeah or something like that and and that type of character for ryan reynolds it still fits within he's got the charm he's still good looking now granted they put a little black makeup under his eyes and they make him look tired like he's been sitting at the poker tables all night and so that kind of beats him up a little bit but he's still really good looking he still nails uh, a, you know, an amazingly gorgeous woman in Sienna Miller, right? It's not like he's a schlub and he can't pick a hot chick up. But again, that's kind um, of, of course part of the, the, that's kind of part of the genius of the characterization of that movie is that he is essentially a guy who has spent his entire life just being able to get away with anything because he's good looking. So it's built so into the character. So charming and exactly. Whereas like, that's not this character. This character is someone who is put upon and overworked and exhausted. Um, but the only thing I think that I can sit there and think, well, he's probably exhausted because he's spending all of his nights, you know, getting, getting gains in the gym, you know, (laughs) you know, but it's, it's the thing, but the thing is too. Okay. So even I would say, I think both say, if you take something like Van Wilder and you take something like just friends, which are kind of much more throwaway films than say something like Mississippi grind, I think they also utilize Ryan Reynolds in much more interesting ways because, again, Van Wilder utilizes this kind of man-child element to him where he's a guy who is like – he's like um, the top athlete in school to the point where by the end of the film it's becoming a bit sad that he's still there. And it's like – and it makes – so it it, it works in in a way because he's playing too tight. And then in Just Friends, the weird subversion they do is to make him an asshole – and make him really kind of like actually obnoxious because he's someone who's so convinced of his own charm that he becomes frustrated and angry and alienated when he can't get what he wants. And so, Mm. but that's the problem with this film is it doesn't start off from the assumption that Ryan Reynolds is a good looking, charming guy. It starts off from the opposite perspective that he's not. And that's the problem is that there's no build towards him, him being a romantic lead. 
And I actually think that's the interesting thing about the gender dynamic, because in theory, these are gender points that would be generally associated with the opposite sex. So the put-upon mean boss who overworks the assistant would generally be a male character, and the character who kind of goes from a transformation of being the kind of schlubby put-upon someone to finding their own empowerment would be a female character. And I think the film is struggling to figure out the gender dynamics of what's going on in this film. I wonder if part of the problem, too, is that New York is such a strange culture compared to most places in the world, maybe anywhere else in the world. I would be willing to bet you, because New York is different from L.A., but I've obviously lived most of my life in, in the L.A. area, and I've spent a lot of time in New York, but I'd be willing to bet you that the idea of the extremely good-looking assistant to the boss is quite common in New York because it's extremely common in LA. Well, I mean, right? LA is the, the person, LA is, is is the home of the most attractive wait staff in the world. Exactly. The most attractive wait staff and assistant agents and whatever in the entire world, right? And so the problem is is that I think maybe your frustration is almost like a very like human frustration. You're like this isn't the real world. This is the LA world. This is the the New York world where the these people they, I don't know, it's just not as real for a bunch of different reasons. But nevertheless, in those two cities, this kind of is relatively common. I, 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 I get your point to a certain extent, dude, but this dude's not a wannabe actor. He's not someone who's like an assistant to somebody hoping that he's going to get a part in something. He is... A like he's he's an he's a guy who supposedly loves reading and books and wants to like be a publisher. I mean, I think it's a I'm different telling kind of... you in New York you would see this. How many like like good Dude, looking London, Brooklynite? Man. Yeah, but. British people aren't as good looking as American people. Yeah, but I like, mean, uh, on, dude, I, I think you should know that like... <laughs> I'm what, kidding. Like, to all my British like, listeners out there. London's I love only you. like, what, like London's <laughs> only like 50% British anyway. So like, what is... Yeah, it's a good point. No, and, and London, but London, London, I think would be the most comparable, from what I've experienced at least, uh, British city. And and Sydney actually reminds me a lot of of that same sort of thing because there are just a lot of good-looking people here. Everyone works out here. Uh, everyone is very health-conscious here compared to, like, maybe Scotland or Ireland or fucking Nebraska or something You got like a that. beach culture so, out there, which is kind of like one of those, that, right. you know, you got a beach culture, people. And it's a multicultural city, so you get a lot of, like, mixed families, which, you know, once once you get, like, some uh, some different genes in the gene pool then you get some lovely combinations well, I always of people, loved, so. I always loved the uh, I always loved uh, in happy endings when they said half black is like God's photoshop <laughs> yeah exactly exactly so yeah so I mean I kind of I, I, I think in New York that there are a lot of really good looking assistants or really good looking well, graphic I think we, designers I think I'm, who I'm are also I'm sure ripped. there's good looking assistants in the world. I think that I think the the film's problems are far greater than that. And again, I would yeah, I would yeah, point yeah. out, set it up. Glenn Powell is a good looking dude. They still managed to make him work as a kind of slightly schlubby looking overworked guy. I mean, even in that movie, he's dating a model. So it's not even like he's like so, the, right. the film's not even trying to set up like he's some kind of guy who's like 
you know, completely like lonely all the time or anything like that. But I just I don't know what it is, but there's a kind of otherworldliness to Ryan Reynolds, which just doesn't Do you think it would have been better if he had a girl in New York? Maybe. I, maybe. And that that also threw another wrench into the I also the weirdly kind of think Ryan Reynolds reads is maybe too old for this film because at this point he's in his early 30s. And it's like, I think maybe if you had, like, a 22-year-old kid, this would work better, like, somebody who's in, like, Mm. their early to mid-20s. Because also, I'm just kind of a little bit, like, you know, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm just kind of, like, is is he, it just feels a little bit weird. How long has he been working there, and how long has he been with her? And it's kind of, like, I don't know. I kind of think Ryan, I could go as far as to say I think Ryan Reynolds might be miscast in this film. But I, oh, shit. but I don't think, I don't actually think it's his fault because I think so much of this film is badly conceived of, you know, in terms okay. of, I think, I think the, like I said, I think the concept's really good. I like it. I kind of also, I, I do like the idea that she just was kind of like, you know, it's not like I'm a terrorist, I'm Canadian. So it's like, it's, it's really that big a deal. And it's like, oh, no, 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 right. no it is a big deal. I, I like that because I do kind of always feel <laughs> like there's that weird associate like i think that's that's even as a, as americans we have that thing where we're kind of like well like yeah i mean it's canada we're not gonna like you know not gonna kick out people for being canadian it's it's like it's it's the mexicans yeah. people are worried about you know um yeah so i mean it's it's like you know it's things like that i kind of like but i don't know i mean i i just genuinely think and it's it's interesting that it's been remade a bunch of times because I genuinely think there is a good version of this movie to be made. I'm just not sure. I mean, this uh, Anne Fletcher, who is the director, like her filmography is incredibly underwhelming. Like she's um, like otherwise she was in like she 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 made like uh, uh, 27 Dresses, uh, the first Step Up movie. Um, yeah. She made that film, The Guilt Trip, with Barbara Streisand and Seth Rogen, where Barbara Streisand was Seth Rogen's yeah. mom. Uh, like that movie, Hot Pursuit, which got absolutely slammed. And then she's got like a new film coming out called Dumpling. And she, to me, she just seems like a woman who's just makes like studio product and probably gets jobs because like her movies have been successful enough and she doesn't rock the boat enough money yeah i mean because you know this movie made money it was like you know it made like 317 million off of a 40 million dollar budget you know back in the day that would be a huge runaway success right 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 okay so let's uh let's stop talking about this extremely mediocre film and move on to death proof You saw my car, I saw your legs. Now look, I ain't stalking y'all, but I didn't say it wasn't a wolf. He's got charm. Is there anybody in this place you could vouch for to give me a ride home? Fair lady, your chariot awaits. He's got style. Do I frighten you? Is it my scar? It's your car. And he's got a set of wheels. Is it safe? Oh, it's better than safe. It's death proof. To die for. Well, Pam, which way are you going? Left or right? Right, right. Ah, that's too bad. Why? Well, because it was a 50-50 shot on whether you'd be going left or right. But since you're going the other way, 
I'm afraid you're gonna have to start getting scared immediately. From Quentin Tarantino, the director of Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, and Kill Bill, comes Death Proof. This car is 100% death proof. Only to get the benefit of it, honey, you really need to be sitting in my seat. If he likes the way you move, then he decides. The way you die. His method is brutal. His weapon is speed. But his latest targets are about to fight back. Let's kill this bastard. You know a king lets you go. Quentin Tarantino's Death Proof. Ladies! That was fun! A Grindhouse feature. Okay, so, um, Death Proof is about three friends. Uh, no, it's, no, what is this? Wait, 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 no, 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 no. I'm, I'm really curious I'm to, do, to see to do you a bit. try to give this a, a simple synopsis. I'm trying to do a bit, man. I'm trying to do a bit, okay? <laughs> so we started out with three friends. Arlene, Shauna, and radio DJ Jungle Julia, which I feel really awkward saying. Um, Super racist. <laughs> and they are going out and they get a party in Austin, Texas, um, on their way to celebrate Julia's birthday. Um, basically, Julia reveals that she made this radio announcement where she offered her friend Arlene, also known as Butterfly, up as for uh, if, if somebody sees them out, they can say a poem, and she will give that person a lap dance. Um, now, Arlene, Butterfly, keeps seeing this weird car stalking around, and it's got like a kind of like skull and crossbones on, it's black, it's kind of creepy looking, uh, comes with some weird strings, like, I don't know what you call it, like synth music in the background anytime you see it. Um, yep. So they go to the bar. Uh, there's some kind of bullshit about how Julia wants to, you know, hook up with some guy and she's texting him and the guy never calls her back and it doesn't matter. It's there, but it doesn't have anything to do with the rest of the plot. Um, and then, you know, there's some other some some of Tarantino's friends and Tarantino are at the bar and all of them are equally <laughs> terrible actors. Um and what Eli Roth and one of the dudes from Inglorious Bastards. The, and we and, proceed to yeah. go through what I think is maybe 45 minutes of what feels like a middle-aged man trying to write 20-somethings, and it's really, really painfully long. Um, but then, my man shows up. Aging Hollywood stunt double, Stuntman Mike. And he's been, he's the one in the black car, been trailing the women. And uh, basically, he takes uh, Arlene up on Julia's offer and he reads the poem out and she has to give him a lap dance. And it's, it's, uh, and, and, and yeah, and it's one of the many elements of the film where you're kind of like, don't know what that had to do with anything, but okay. <laughs> um, and then, so then um, the, the girls go off cause they're going to go like party at some lake house or something like that. And, uh, um, and um, stuntman Mike is giving, 
Rose McGowan, uh, then wife of other Grindhouse director, uh, Robert Rodriguez. Um, and they actually, they might not have been married at that point, but they might have gotten married after it. Anyway, point is, she's also in it. And uh, that's when you find out that Stuntman Mike is a deranged murderer who has a car which he has death proofed, um, which means that basically it's like, you know, what well, you, you uh, make a car kind of indestructible so that um, the stunt person can crash and not kill themselves. However, it does not protect Rose McGowan. So Stuntman Mike kills her by getting into a heavy swerve and basically knocking, you know, uh, knocking the shit out of her inside the car. Then he tracks down the three friends and rams his car into them in a really impressive destruction sequence. Um, we then have a whole point where uh, he's in a hospital and the cops kind of go like, well, we can't prove that he he did it deliberately. Um, and I'm a lazy Texas stereotype, so I don't give a shit. So, <laughs> and then he kind of like, and, and then we cut to the second half of the movie because this is only the first half of the movie. So now we are in Tennessee and now we have a different set of girls we're following. Um, who are all girls who w- are working on a movie. And once again, we have to suffer through 20 minutes or so of, w- again, what feels like a middle-aged man writing 20-something women in this really painfully over-stylized fashion. Um, I, like the cam- I like the camera work during that scene. And it's... And, and, that's, a, that's about it. And, and so, you know, and so our, we, with our, their four friends are... Abernathy Rose, Kim Mathis, Lee Montgomery, and Zoe Bell playing Zoe Bell. Um, <laughs> uh, the other ones are played by Rosario Dawson, um, uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, and I think what is a fairly early Mary Elizabeth Winstead role, and uh, Tracy Toms, uh, famous for Rent. Um, and yeah, so the girls are basically they're from a movie. Zoe Bell is a stunt woman. Tracy Toms is also a stunt woman, and basically they have this whole thing that they want to do a stunt on the the car from Vanishing Point, which is a 1970 Dodge Charger. And so, again, we have to go through a whole thing of how they get the Dodge Charger and how they decide to do this. And at a certain point, you're kind of like, you remember when this movie was about a stuntman trying to, you know, sort of like hunt down women to kill them? Mm. So they get the Dodge Challenger, they go do the stunt, and then that's when Stuntman Mike shows up and tries to run them off the road. Um, and, uh, you know, in a, in a pretty cool car sequence and then, you know, they sort of swerve out and then the women kind of like survive and then they kind of go, fuck it, let's go get him. And so then they chase down stuntman Mike in a, again, a pretty cool car chase. And then, you know, they run him off the road and, uh, then they drag him out of the car and murder him and, 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 and. And then the movie's over. Uh, and Kurt Russell's yeah. Kurt Russell is still fucking legit. That's what I'm gonna say. Is like, I'm. Uh, it's, it's it's hard for me. Cause I'm again. I think I think I'm. I think we're both in the same boat here. I am not trying to necessarily argue for death proof. I am arguing for Kurt Russell in death proof. I will give you half of that, and what I will say is. The first half, yes. The second half, I, it, it. The second half for me is so bad 
that that even the only time he's good in the second half is the very beginning when he like licks Rosario Dawson's toes and it's kind of continued from the first half the story and you're kind of thinking oh so this is like years later he's got a little bit of like some it's scruffy like beard now later. and okay and so he's got some scruffy beard now and you're like okay so this is interesting this is his next prey that he's stalking okay and then when he takes off after he runs into them in front of the quickie mart or whatever it is after that i think he's fucking terrible in the second half really like when he has his broken arm and he's like like i think his acting is actually really over the top and cheesy and when he's like pleading for mercy and he's laughing and he's getting away it just seems so over the top and fake to me now the first half i think he's fucking badass I think he's awesome. He's got everything actually on the list. He's charming. He's brooding. He's charismatic. He doesn't get the he's body also out, got this, well, I, I'm, I'm, He doesn't have the I'm body. Gonna, I'm going to lose that part. I know that. Yeah, that category, yeah, that, that one, you're fucked up. But he's got an amazing jacket. Here's my I mean, question. He's, he's, Do you think Nicholas Winding Refn ripped off this jacket for Drive? <laughs> uh, when was this film made? Uh, 2007, I think. It's funny. I've actually heard them. I can't remember the origin story, but I've heard Ryan Gosling and Refn talk about the origin of the jacket. There is there is a story behind it that people can Google if they're interested. I don't remember what it is, but there is there is some unique reason why the jacket is the way that it is in the movie Drive. But he is he he has a badass jacket, and even when he's just wearing like his black shirt when he's getting his lap dance or when he's saying the poem and shit like that, he's still, it kind of fits with the character. He still looks good. His hair is, you know, it's decent at least because he's got the mullet that he's rocking. So, you know, he hits some of the points on the list. And if the first half would like have continued, I would be like, okay, he's actually kind of awesome. In this, I'm kind of like, he's he's awesome in the first half and in the second half, it's just... I don't know. Man. See, I, I think I, it just kind of falls apart. I think there's something interesting about this movie because I don't think I don't think this movie really works as a whole. But here's here's the interesting thing about it. Okay, so obviously, like, you do you know the backstory of this film? Uh, I don't think so. Okay, so basically, this film was conceived of as this kind of gimmick that him and Robert Rodriguez were doing, um, which was it was one part of a of a movie called Grindhouse which the idea was right. that Robert Rodriguez was making um, one film for it, Tarantino was making one film for it, but the idea was that it was essentially supposed to come packaged as one movie. So um, Robert Rodriguez made a film called P- Planet Terror, and, um, and then they would show a whole bunch of like fake commercials in between it, and then Tarantino did Death Proof. Now, I think part of the problem is both the... Both of them kind of got indulgent and essentially made a whole movie, whereas like really they should have been like two 45 minute segments, kind of like, you know, kind of like the Twilight Zone, where it's like their homage to sort of like 70s grindhouse cinema. Um, And so what happened then is that when it came out, both films were about an hour, 15, an hour, 15 minutes. Um, And audiences just didn't get it. Like they try to package this whole like it's the grindhouse experience. And, you know, it, it bombed massively in the U.S. Um, and basically it was, this, it was this kind of passion idea of Rodriguez and Tarantino that they kind of had the clout to get made. And, you know, because of this, it meant that when it went to in international distribution, uh, the studio, all the distributors kind of panicked and the films got split up and essentially were packaged as two different films. Now, here's the difference. I have seen the Grindhouse version of this film. It's a lot better. Due to the fact okay. that it's an hour 15 minutes as opposed to an hour 45, 
and it basically cuts out everything that's gone is all of the incidental talking. Like, it's lean. It's really just to the point. And so in that way, if you're going to make a film that's an homage to 70s cinema, to a certain extent, Tarantino is working from the idea of what the structure and style of those 70s films are. So the 70s films are a lot about we have one location we can use. We need to, like, get the most out of it. Or we have, like, if... People, we, people will sit through 75 minutes of not much happening to get 15 minutes of an awesome car chase, you know. And I'm not trying to use that as an excuse to say that the movie is good. But what I'm trying to say is that it at least is thematically consistent in that way, in, in the fact that that's kind of what it's supposed to be homaging. Therefore, that's what it gets. And I don't think it subverts that. And I think it's too obsessed with the... Um, with the, the sort of aesthetic of it. Like, you know, it's, it's, and it's also, it's very weird how the first half of the movie starts off with all of these scratches and all of these jump cuts. And then you feel like in the second half, I think it's one of the things that really is very weak about the second half is the second half starts to feel way too much like Tarantino is trying to make a proper movie again. And it's really weird and indulgent. And you just kind of like, I don't care. Why am I listening to these four girls talk about like, set romances i don't give a shit like it's like it's got nothing to do with the rest of the movie but like i said in the one hour 15 minute cut almost all of that is cut out it's really it's it's really lean and it kind of works as this kind of like b movie slasher movie with this kind of interesting spin in the sense that rather than it being a guy who's like stalking girls with a knife it's a guy who's stalking girls with a car so see prior prior to this screening or this viewing I should say I think I had only ever seen the shorter versions the mm. the double bill versions because I remembered enjoying the film a whole lot more and then I watched it last night and I was like this movie is actually not a good movie yeah. like it's just not and in my mind too you mentioned planet terror and in my mind I still have a positive image of how I feel about planet terror so is there a long version of planet terror too No well because the thing was, Tarantino and Rodriguez kind of made it differently. So it's like, so like part of the joke is, for instance, things will cut out, you know, uh, at certain points as if like the distributor right. has cut the film down. Um, so in Planet Terror, there's a sex scene that immediately cuts to another scene because it's like it's like right as you think there's going to be boobs, it cuts out almost as if like the distributor had stolen those frames of boobs for himself. Mm. Um but with Death Proof, he actually filmed all of this stuff and then cut things down for, for you know, in order to create that effect. So, for instance, in, okay. in the... in the So this is kind of the director's cut, in yeah. a way. Yeah, so in the um, Grindhouse version, it cuts before the lap dance happens. So the lap dance starts, and then it's almost the joke is that it cuts beforehand. And that's the interesting thing. I don't think the movie is better for having that lap dance. I think it just feels really, like... I think it actually feels really awkward and long and kind of tedious, you know, and it's like, and I think it's, again, I think the joke of cutting out the lap dance works better than actually seeing the lap dance. I think the joke of thinking things are missing actually works better than actually seeing what's not missing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, the, the thing that I can say more than anything about this film is it's just too fucking long. It is. Too Everything long, about it drags on. Everything drags on too long. Even the really cool, sort of, um, I guess, imitation vanishing point 
stunt scene in the second half to me is too long. I get it. Cool. I'm excited, but now after a while, then it doesn't become exciting anymore. And then the car chase sequence. I mean, I remember at one point I looked, and it's the point at which they crash. Zoe Bell gets thrown into the bushes. Tracy Toms pulls out the gun, shoots Kurt Russell. I looked to see how much time was left. (laughs) There was another 16 minutes. Mm. So, I mean, and that had already been probably about... 10 or 15 minutes of just car chase. Yeah. And then there was another, and then of course you have to add credits. So we'll say another 10 minutes of them chasing until they finally beat him up and kill him. I think the weird <laughs> thing too to this. It's just, it just drags too much. Everything about it I, drags. I think the weird thing is like Tarantino makes long movies and a lot of his movies are too long. Um, but usually you feel there's more to them. Like there's something going on. There's something going on. And I think, you know, certainly there's something in the gender dynamics and the way it sort of critiques, uh, you know, there's there's the sort of final girl trope um, with this film to a certain extent. And I I like the idea of this guy kind of ends up meeting these badass women who he's not actually a match for. You know, I think I think, again, that's. In theory, in concept, I like that. And I actually, again, I like too. I like Zoe Bell. I like the fact that she's just kind of essentially playing herself. You know, again, because that feels like something out of a 70s or 80s kind of exploitation movie. It's like, um, have you ever heard of the movie Jim Cotta? No. It's like this movie that stars like a famous gymnast. And they're kind of like, oh, this this dude's like, he was like, he became like famous through the Olympics or something like that. He was kind of like, they're kind of like, we can build a movie around him where he does like karate, but in like gym ways. And so it's like, he's like a gymnast <laughs> who gets recruited by like the American government to go infiltrate some weird Eastern European country. And then the film has to find all of these ways for him to do like gymnastics in like in this as, as he's like fighting off bad guys. And you you know, yeah. that stuff is all really fun. Um, but it's just like, I mean, it's it's weird because in a strange way, it's like a lot of the movies that this is emulating and homaging are not good movies. They're boring and they are kind of long. And right. that's kind of the weird thing. So it's like part of the problem is this film almost has this weird kind of like way of being able to say, oh, well, you know, that's what that's what the point is. But I mean, I guess at the same time, the thing you can go with is saying like, well, I don't need to I don't need to watch it then. If you know, if it's if it's deliberately going to trying to be a bad movie, it doesn't mean I have to watch it. But I mean, it, it is weird, too, because, you know, you I, again, I have this weird point where because one of the things, too, is that, that Tarantino, this is I'm pretty sure his only time that he's ever worked as his own cinematographer And this film Mm. seems so obsessed with its own aesthetics and the idea that it it feels like it's creating this iconic images all the time. Like it's so obsessed with, oh, let's like that shot of like Rosario Dawson just like sitting on like the Mustang or, um, you know, or, or, you know, that that shot of like Kurt Russell, like looking over his shoulder in the jacket. It feels like. It feels like it's like these are images that people are going to like cream over for decades. It feels so convinced of is its this, own iconicness. Is this Tarantino's student film? Is this his thesis film? I It feels – that was the weird thing though too though. I mean for a director, you know, over a decade into his career at this point, it feels weirdly like a first film. 
Yeah. yeah. That's what I'm wondering. It's almost like he goes back and makes his student film. Like, this is his thesis project on grindhouse cinema yeah. and maybe it's or on exploitation films and maybe that's yeah. and it doesn't help too that i don't like these growing house homage as much because most of the time i think they're bad because i i think that at least the one thing i'll say about tarantino's film is i think he's playing it straight which i think works for you know as much as it works i think that's what works about it is the fact that he's essentially trying to make a straight grindhouse film not poking fun at itself whereas like that's the thing i don't mm. like about planet terror planet terror feels like it's inviting you to laugh at it all the time it's like it's got a nod and a wink to it at all the time and that feels obnoxious to me and so many of these grindhouse pastiche films they feel like they're trying to get out of jail by kind of simply going like well we're not taking this seriously so you shouldn't either you know whereas uh. tarantino i actually think is trying to make the uh, is trying to make a fairly serious grindhouse film you know and it's yeah. And I, you know, and I, I, to this, but it's, it's so self-referential. It's like, and I think that's almost what becomes obnoxious about well, it. And I, well, it's self-referential and it's pedantic. Yeah. And, and it's because it's like the, the girls are sitting around talking about how bad certain movies are. You know, they make fun of Angelina Jolie's Gone in 60 Seconds because that's not the good one. That's the bullshit one. But then they talk about how much they love Vanishing Point and all these old car chase movies because that's back in the day when Hollywood did that, which is clearly just Tarantino trying to berate the audience for being dumbasses. Well, that's the weird and that's the weird thing too. I don't like that. Well, here's the weird thing too. It's like, you know how like have you have you ever taken a creative writing class? Yes. Okay. Like I'm sure you've you've seen this as well. Like honestly, you know, dollars to donuts, a good 70, 75 and maybe I'm being generous, maybe I'm maybe I'm being too conservative there of shit that comes out of creative writing classes is people going this is something that happened to me in my life, and I'm legitimizing my choices by telling you exactly why I was right and why the person who did this to me was wrong or why I'm, I, I'm super smart about this thing that I have an opinion on. And that's kind mm. of what this film feels like. feels like everybody mm. is talking out of Tarantino's mouth. Is Tarantino's talking through every all these sort of surrogate people explaining right. to you why his decisions, his opinions, and his feelings are all the most important. Are the best. And it's like yeah. that horrible fucking Eli Roth scene, where Eli Roth is not a good actor to begin with, but like he can be minimized. And that whole point where he basically tries to explain some weirdly over-convoluted plan to like sleep with these women, I'm kind of like, I have never in my life like gone to that sort of level of oh we're going to work out a blueprint document of how we're going to convince these down to the specific alcohol we use at certain points and it's like that pain's like we need to go we, we can't fuck around we need to go to jaeger shots i'm like like dude like really like that's like, I'm like are we get- just getting an insight into the true perversity of tarantino's mind then it's like okay because we know he's a bit of an obsessive we know he's a fetishist and we also know he's extremely intelligent so maybe he's just a supervillain. But it's like, but it's also like, I'm not even doing it from that point. I'm just like, that to me weirdly sounds like a dorky guy trying to write like, like broish dudes. It like, it doesn't. Well, Tarantino is a dorky guy. I have the impression that Tarantino's understanding of what a cool guy is, is what a cinematic cool guy is. Yeah. And what a sexy girl is, is a cinematic sexy girl. And maybe that's so it. I don't think that he, I don't know. That's the maybe problem. That's, but is maybe that's the problem. He lives so much through the fantasy of cinema that I don't know. 
I don't know how much it is that I can really connect with his characters outside of just recognizing that they're all copies of copies of copies. But that's the thing that I was trying to sit there and I was trying to think, like, why is it? Because I like Tarantino. I like Tarantino's dialogue a lot of the time. Why is it so frustratingly obnoxious to me in this movie? And I think that that might be it. It might be because Tarantino is trying to write somewhat believable 20-somethings rather than writing movie archetypes. And that's maybe part of it is that they don't – is that they feel – I mean maybe that's why Stuntman Mike, because he's a movie character, starts to feel – like like works when he's in the bar because like you you mm. suddenly he is a kind of movie archetype character he's a big concept of a of of a of a person rather than just being like a bunch of 20 somethings and then also it's really weird too because the whole thing is styled in this very 70s way and then suddenly somebody brings out a cell phone and it feels really weird um yeah and then it's also but it's so weird too because we we go from this really scratchy look in the first half to this really clean right, right. aesthetic look in the second half. And it's like you have well, that I don't crazy... like the scratchy look in the first half either. Huh? I think I, I think the scratchy look in the first half is overplayed. Yeah, I no, think I think it I'd could agree have been really cool. I think it I think it was trying I like the jump cuts. I like the fact that it sort of stops and it scratches and, and I like that. But I think that they do it too much. Yeah, no, I agree with and you. And it starts to get distracting at that point. When it's also like it's weird because also then to you know suddenly you're in the 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 cafe scene with the the new set of girls and you have like that crazy uh, like um you know shot that's just rotating around the table and panning and moving yeah. this is incredibly I mean it's it's a, it's a fucking technical marvel but I'm just kind of yeah, like okay technically it's cool we're yeah. not in a grindhouse movie anymore because there's no grindhouse movie that's doing this and again you know <laughs> in theory I like the fact that you can see Kurt Russell out he of focus he does that same camera him. movement in Reservoir Dogs too at the one point when the guys are all sitting around at a table it's very similar but it cuts in Reservoir Dogs whereas this one kind of just kept going okay yeah this was more complicated than the Reservoir Dogs one but it's like I don't know it's just like it and, and I suppose maybe that's part of it, too, is like Reservoir Dogs, again, they're kind of these movie archetypes. And so listening to them talk about Like a Virgin feels really kind of odd and strange. But like <laughs> actually watching like a bunch of fairly normal 20 something women just have a conversation about fluff that you don't give a shit about. And again, it's like it's like this weird thing where like he goes like, oh, the one thing you never do is you never call a Kiwi an Aussie. It's like I'm like, are you? Do you think that you're getting like points for that, for like cleverness for that? Like it's like, right? It, it's it, it just seems like such. It it feels like there's so many points in this dialogue where he wants to be applauded for how clever he's being, but it feels again mm. like I, I I think it's really interesting what you said. I, it does feel kind of like a student writing his first script. Hmm. And it's unfortunate too because. I think Mary Elizabeth Winstead is a phenomenal actor. I think Rosario Dawson is a very good actor. And I think Tracy Toms is very good. I, I don't think she's quite as fun. I think Mary Elizabeth Winstead, as a technician for, for being an actor, I think she is phenomenal. I and then I think, think Zoe well, Bell I kind of think this is before people kind of were taking Mary Elizabeth Winstead seriously. I think she was still kind of pretty it it girl at this point. You know, so I think... Right. No, no, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, she's she's doing, like, ballet shit, and she's playing this, you know sexy actor and so she's yeah she's not playing serious indie girl actor yet 
um, or serious indie girl turned into now serious. Well, smashed was kind of the, um, that was kind of the turning point for her. And I, I, I think so. don't think that film's very good, but she's really good in it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love, I love that movie and she is phenomenal in that, but even in this film, I think she is the only one of the four that I really like consistently just in terms of her performance, even though she has a smaller part than the other three, because she kind of just gets left out of the very final, final bit. And then I think Zoe Bell is really charming, just in general. She has a charisma about her that I'm glad that she was given a sort of centerpiece role. Yeah. But, um, and then I think actually, unfortunately, I think both Tracy Toms and Rosario Dawson for me, as much as I like them, I think that Rosario Dawson is kind of almost trying too hard at times to be kind of witty or... Or, or, but I kind of don't think that's her fault. I think that's kind of like I weird. That's what I mean. Weirdly, this is Tarantino's I don't blame fault. Any he... the actors in this film because I feel no, like same. I feel like they're put in this. They're they're given these overwordy things to say constantly, and it, it's like they're right. trying to act natural and be charming and charismatic. Well, everything is overspoken. It's like it's like nobody. Can, it's like one of the things I always think too when you read like a student script is like everything has to be reported like three or four times. It's like, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. you know, you, somebody walks in a room, like kind of like, what are you doing here? What do you mean? What am I doing here? Well, what does it sound like? I mean, when I say, what are you doing here? Well, that's a, you know, well, you're wasting time. We could just get on with you know, having, having a proper conversation. Well, I don't see why, why you're making such a big deal out of it. You know, it's like that thing of right. like, they, that's witty dialogue to like a first time writer. And like, that's what this feels like is everybody has to mm. over explain and over retort to mm. everything somebody else says. And it just becomes so fucking tedious at a certain point <laughs> and yeah well i think and it's not just the over explaining of everything or the kind of just being in overly loquacious it's also that the stakes are over the top that don't seem to fit sometimes like and this is my complaint about tracy toms is she's trying to play this badass woman and i think the tracy toms is great but i i just don't buy her in this at that point zoe bell is the only one that like actually seems like a tough woman to because mm-hmm. she is actually a stunt woman yeah and she she kind of just yeah i mean i feel like that if i wanted to go rock climbing zoe bell would easily be down Ooh. for it you want to go canoeing she would be down for it stunt driver i, mean, I don't know tracy tom's just she doesn't quite and Ooh. maybe i'm totally stereotyping because she's a broadway performer and shit like i don't know but for some reason it just didn't quite i think work it's interesting too, I, again, I because i think yeah. i think again you look at like like tarantino again is so concerned with this idea that like those four women are going to be like it's going to be like an iconic image because they're all like sta- right. like you know you've got mary elizabeth winstead inexplicably in a cheerleading outfit um you've got like like rosario dawson's well, got like she's playing a role and that's the character yeah because because like and... uh, like people with people in film sets they just go hang out in their costumes like um yeah. away from the set you know yeah. when there's kind of like there's money <laughs> on the line and they need to keep those costumes for like for you know for future shoot days and stuff like that i yeah it yeah. it's it's a flimsy excuse and then rosario dawson's in the cowboy boots and she's got like the fringe haircut and like the the sort of like that mm. weird and i just gonna say I have a real thing for Rosario Dawson, so I'm not like 
taken anything away from her because like she looks good in this movie. But um, mm-hmm. um, but like and then Tracy Toms, you know, she's got like the the, the sort of le- the camouflage like T-shirt and, you know, and then and, and, and that's the thing is like when Zoe Bell shows up, she's the only person who looks like a real person, you know, and so absolutely. And absolutely. And again, this is kind of why I feel like Tarantino uh, as also the cinematographer is so concerned with the visual aesthetic value of this film that I feel like there's something really missing outside of that. Hmm. Yeah, I totally see that. I mean, there's a lot of like. I was actually surprised cool that it had bits. as as positive feedback with critics as it did. I kind of thought, and maybe it was the grind, the grindhouse version that most of them were responding to, but. N- I don't know. It, I, I was surprised that it got as much love. I mean, it's not crazy, but still, it's like mid-60s. Yeah, I, and, I have a, I, and then the critics... Well, I, yeah. I was really tempted to just put out a thing on Facebook last night. It was too late, really, for me to put anything out on Facebook, but I really kind of just wanted to say, is there anyone <coughs> out there who genuinely likes Death Proof? Like, I want to, like, like, someone who actually will stick up for it and say they really like it as a movie. Um, right. And that's the thing. I hadn't watched it in a long time, and I think I... I went to a when I I saw it when it came out and I went to a Q and A screening with Tarantino, uh, you know he sat next to me we hung out um, mm. and <laughs> you know, asked him some questions um, but no I I think um, I I think the thing with it um, I think the thing with it is like I think I because I was a Tarantino fan there's like that thing that I was like well everything here is a deliberate choice and if I'm not getting it or if I'm not enjoying it. It must be yeah. my fault. And I will say, I didn't like Kill Bill Volume 1 that much the first time I watched it. And then on repeat viewings, I actually liked it a lot more. So, I don't know. I think there's always been an element to Death Proof where I was kind of like, yeah, I'm not sure I like it that much, but it'll click at some point, maybe. And I think kind mm. of this point, I'm just like, and I think I think I have enough distance on it now. Um, and I think I have enough confidence in my own opinion and enough of, cause I watched this movie when I was like first time when I was like 19. So it's like, um, so it's like, it's, it's now I can look at it and go, Oh no, I would have been 21. Um, and I, I can look at it and I can go like, okay, no, I, I can see exactly what the problems are because also they're problems that have surfaced a lot with Tarantino in the last couple of years. And I actually think the interesting thing is I think death proof essentially spurred Tarantino on to a kind of different phase in his career. Cause I think it was kind of death proof. He got, he comes off of this and then does inglorious bastards. And it kind of feels like with inglorious bastards and Django unchained, it kind of feels like it's he's him going in a slightly different direction than what he was going mm. with. It's almost like, and, and Tarantino has said it himself. He said in the Hollywood reporter round table, he said, you know, I want to make sure that death proof is my worst movie. You know, and he's not even mm. saying he thinks Death Proof is a bad movie. He's just saying I'm well aware. And Tarantino is someone who's very aware of his own legacy. I think Death Proof, it, I think he became, I think he was very hyper aware of the reaction to it and like what what the the end feeling about it is. And you know, the funny thing mm. is, aside from Kurt Russell, his relationship with Kurt Russell, you don't feel like much about Death Proof is kind of maintained. It's kind of the forgotten movie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, when you mentioned it last week that this was the Kurt Russell film that we were going to be watching, it kind of, it was like a filing cabinet in my brain that I hadn't accessed in forever with a, you know, manila folder that was kind of dusty in the back 
all of a sudden got resurfed, and I was like, oh yeah, I completely well, fucking forgot about. Well, that he's, it's actually a good point. It's a good point. Let's let's just move on now to Kurt Russell quickly. Um, so, mm-hmm. I think this movie's kind of interesting within Kurt Russell's career because I think it actually marks a kind of. I think this movie kind of revitalizes Kurt Russell in a big way in terms of Hollywood kind of seeing him as some kind of respected older statesman of cinema. Like, so, I mean, like, you know, prior to, it was interesting because Tarantino talks about how, why he cast Kurt Russell, you know, and he sort of, apparently there was like a whole list of people that were approached for it. Like, uh, he, he approached John Travolta, Willem Dafoe, John Malkovich, Mickey Rourke, Bruce Willis, um, Ron Perlman, Sylvester Stallone, all of them apparently had other commitments. And the thing that I find so weird about, with maybe the exception of Sylvester Stallone, is all of those people just read as villains almost immediately. Like Willem Dafoe, John Malkovich, Mickey Rourke, all of them are just easily villains to begin with. Also says Cal Penn, which I don't get. I can't imagine. I, I, I wonder if that's some kind of weird other things i can't really imagine how cal penn would play stuntman mike that doesn't make any sense i feel like i feel like if this movie were made today it would be josh brolin yeah josh brolin is is possibly a, a good um you know is, is possibly you know would be a good cast for it. but i think actually one of the things that's actually really key about kurt russell is the fact that kurt russell is a guy who is the all-american hero and so the idea of this guy who's kind of from old Hollywood and Kurt Russell is from old Hollywood. Kurt Russell is like a Hollywood kid. I mean, he'd made his debut mm. as a kid in, um, was it called? Uh, it's called, uh, I'll meet you at the fair or, or the world's fair or something. It's the world's fair movie with, um, John Travolta. Um, and he grew up like as a Disney kid, like was in like the computer mm-hmm. who wore tennis shoes and shit like that. So mm. the thing, so, I mean, he's spent his entire life in the business so like so this I and so like that whole thing where he's going through all the TV shows that he was on and all the actors that he worked with, that's Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell spent his like youth in TV and like being on all these shows and stuff like that, you know. So, I mean, um, but anyway, the point is that I think I think you need someone who kind of it's it's like the traditional American hero gone wrong, and and it's it's mm. interesting because what Tarantino said is um he said uh okay where's where's the quote i'm just trying to find the quote it's um for people of my generation he's a true hero but now there's a whole audience out there that doesn't know what kurt russell can do when i open up a newspaper and see an ad that says kurt russell and dreamer or kurt russell and miracle i'm not disparaging of these movies but i'm thinking when is kurt russell going to be a badass again you know and that's Mm. And that, that's kind of it. like Kurt Russell was like being in all of these like playing like dads and kids movies and stuff like that. And like and then what does he do? What does he do after this? Like the highlights, not not everything, but just like what are the highlights after this? Why do you think it revitalizes him? Well, it's like he's suddenly in things like, you know, Bone Tomahawk, you know, Deepwater Horizon. Um, he's, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy 2. You know, he's going to be in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. He's obviously also in The Hateful Eight. But I think that's it. I think people were kind of like, I think there's a certain point in your career where you can become like, say, a Craig T. Nelson, where you just play bit parts as dads in movies. But like Kurt Russell's still getting meaty roles where he's playing like, I mean, and I think he's kind of become the go to Mm. older, um, you know, actor for that in a way that I think there's a lot of people who kind of just who. They, I kind of, it's, it's, there's a problem. There's somebody else that I was thinking of 
who I was talking to Bradley about the other day, where I was kind of like, he basically, oh, okay, Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis is like kind of like fucked his career. But Bruce Willis should be able to be doing the things Kurt Russell is doing at the moment. But because, you know, because he's had so many sort of NAF films and hasn't had a sort of like iconic role to sort of like in, in, in so long, it's that thing of he's just kind of like his entire career has just waned. But Kurt Russell has managed to like become that guy who's still kind of like respected and thought of as a kind of American treasure. Shamalamalamalan film is going to get. Bruce back into because he's playing that glass character again, right? Uh, the, or the I'm not the, not the glass character, the the unbreakable. Uh, character. yeah, the unbreakable guy. Um, I don't know. I didn't like Split that much. I'm not that necessarily that like impressed with the idea that glass and weirdly, I do think it's interesting because I think they're actually selling the trailer a lot on Samuel L. Jackson and James McAvoy, a lot less on Bruce Willis. So mm. I kind of wonder where it's going to go, but I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I just think, I just think it's interesting, you know, because again, I think Bruce Willis could be having this kind of career revitalization. Like if a Tarantino got his hands on Bruce Willis and did something with him, then, you know, people need to remember that they like Bruce Willis. And I think that was one of the things mm. Death Proof did. Death Proof reminded people how much they like Kurt Russell. Cause like pre, cause he's in like Miracle and Sky High, which actually I like Sky High. Um, and like, you know, Dreamer. And then he was in like that huge bomb, which was the remake of the Poseidon adventure. So, I mean, I do think right. Death Proof was kind of this thing that kind of people were like, Oh, like Kurt Russell's still legit. You know, I, yeah. And, I, yeah, yeah. and I, I take your point. I take your point. And I actually, the thing that I was a little bit concerned with definitely when I watched this is I was like, oh, I forgot how little Kurt Russell is actually in this movie. Like, I yeah. I remembered thinking he was he was in it more. But, like, when he's... I mean, you must be thinking because the Grindhouse version, yeah. if it's all condensed down to an hour yeah. 15, that means that we get the first half of him minus the, the, uh, the what's it called? The lap dance yeah. scene. And then you get the second half where... It's the sort of he's chasing the girls and then they're chasing him. And that makes up the bulk of the second half without all of the dialogue, probably, or it's extremely cut down. So you probably get a more condensed role when it's and it's it's interesting, too, because uh, Kurt Russell, basically, he had a really bad experience on this movie called Soldier, which was a huge bomb where basically he broke his leg and was out for a certain amount. And that was kind of his point where he's just like, I don't really want to fucking do any of these big action movies anymore. You know, and and I and I think I mm. think he's always been kind of like a guy who's, I, you know, the, the thing I always hear about Kurt Russell is like, you know, he likes to golf, he likes to hang out, and he's not, you know, so if you want him to be in your movie, you got to kind of talk him into it. You know, it's it's got to be worth mm. his time. You know, I think he's kind of reached that point in his career, and I think, you know, the fact, and I do think something like Death Proof kind of allowed that to happen. Hmm. Yeah, I can see that. Um. I just think that this movie's poor, and unfortunately, he is underutilized in it, and or it's just so well, elongated that it seems that he's underutilized. And in the second half, it's of also the film, weird too just, because it does have meh. it does have like in theory it has a good cast, you know. But it's it's also funny too because I remember when this film was coming out, people going like, "Oh, this is like this is just the crop of like next like." young female stars and like almost none of these people really went and did anything much after this like you know like like you know rosario dawson was already kind of known mary elizabeth winstead is kind of like probably the most successful one of it but like nobody i can't i can't remember another thing i've ever seen Sidney poitier in who is incidentally the daughter of Sidney poitier and named his daughter Sidney poitier 
It's spelled differently, though. Yeah. She has a Y, and yeah. he has an I, right? Yeah. Or the other way around or something. <laughs> um, and then, like, Tracy Toms, I outside of Rent, I, 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 she mostly works in Broadway, as far as I know, because outside of, like, Rent, I don't really can't think of anything else I've ever seen her in. Yeah, she pops up in things every once in a while, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's Tracy Toms. I mean, you know, also, you know, you have Jordan Ladd, who I think kind of comes from being, like, she was in a bunch of Eli Roth films, so it's like, that was, like, peak... Eli Roth and um, Tarantino being buddy buddy with each other, which is why Eli Roth. Mm. And again, it's like it's, it's one of these things that make it feel very studentish because it feels like it's all of Tarantino's buddies just coming down and hanging out, you know. Yeah. But anyway, I think I think we can move on from Death Proof at this point. Yeah, let's move on to the scoring okay. then. Let's see how this is going to pan out. I'm curious. Okay, so first up, acting. I'm going to give you boy Ryan Reynolds. A seven, because dude's on autopilot. I'm t- he's not really doing much heavy lifting in this. I'm like, you know, I I, I really struggle to give him much in anything more than that. Okay, uh, I gave your boy Kurt Russell a seven. What? And the reason is because in the first half he's a nine, and then in the second half he's a fucking three. <laughs> I was, it was so obnoxious with his like broken arm overacting that he was hurt. So I gave it a seven. All right, fine. Okay, chemistry. I'll go with six because I really don't yeah, think you they, didn't like their chemistry. I don't think they have much chemistry. If I'm being honest, I don't. I don't think they're a good pairing. And then I kind of at the end of it, I'm kind of like, I don't really buy that these two people are gonna. So yeah, so I think the fact that they're both kind of charming, good-looking people gets them some distance. But I don't think actually their chemistry is that amazing. Yeah, uh, for chemistry, I went eight, and I think that he's he's extremely charming in the first half, both with Rose McGowan when he's just kind of meeting her and just being his kind of, you know, when she's like, oh, are you over-listening to my, or, or you know, uh, eavesdropping on my conversation, and he's like, am I eavesdropping, or did I, like, could I not help but hear, like, that bit, the banter is really good, and... Um, I mean, I think he's a little awkward with the chick that he's trying to get to do the lap dance, but that's not his fault. It's just because the scene is so damn drawn out and Tarantino's trying to make it too intense. But nevertheless, he's still pretty fucking charming in that bit. See, I remember seeing uh, that woman, Vanessa Ferlito, uh, in a trailer for Medea Goes to Jail and just going like, oh, shit has not gone good for you after Death Proof. How the mighty have fallen. Yeah, yeah. Um... Okay, um, so for Smolder, again, I'm giving it a seven because I just feel like he's on autopilot. I don't really feel like I don't feel like we're getting a lot of Smolder in this. It's like it's like you're getting the minimum amount that you usually get from Ryan Reynolds, which is, you know, I don't think Ryan Reynolds is capable of not smoldering. But it's like, I don't know. Again, it doesn't it, it feels autopilot. Okay, uh, so for Smolder, I went with a nine because I think that the, the thing that makes the chemistry and the charisma and the acting so great is that he is this smoldering serial killer, mm. and that, that that's what makes him charming. When I think so that, I think has, the bit where he and he's he's actually like he's like very sexy oh, too. Yeah. On the bit too, where he like he's so. asked for the lap dance. And he's like got like this. He's like it's it's interesting because I do think he manages to both be kind of like alluring, mysterious, and dangerous all at the same time, you know. And it's right. like it's it's yeah. You know, I think I think definitely. Uh, okay, so hair. I'm gonna give Ryan Reynolds a six because he has hair. You know, it's like <laughs> it doesn't look bad. It's it's some hair. <laughs> Good for him. Yeah, he's uh, got hair. 
He does have, have hair. You uh, so for hair, it's like it's like you know, I'm I'm you know, I'm I'm jealous to a certain extent. I wish I had Ryan Reynolds' hair, but you know, it's like he doesn't do much with it. Yeah, no, um, and even though the hair is not as good as other Kurt Russell expressions, it's still an eight. Um, it's he's still got a badass mullet. There's no facial hair, which is fine, but he's still got a badass. Well, mullet. I also like the fact too that it feels like it's sort of a classic Kurt Russell hair look, but it's kind of gray and old. It like it feels appropriate for the character. Um, yeah. So, body. I mean, I gotta give him a ten. I mean, come on. I of mean, course, look, man. I mean, you know, it's like you, you're kind of like that. It's it's so funny too. If you Google, because I couldn't even because when I was looking up clothes for later, I couldn't even remember what he wore in this film. So I literally just Googled images of Ryan Reynolds in the proposal, and a good 65 percent of those images on Google uh, of Ryan Reynolds in the proposal are just Ryan Reynolds in that shirtless scene. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I will say, I think Ryan Reynolds has been even more cut than he is at that scene, but, I mean, you're not going to quibble. Yeah, no. Um, So for Kurt Russell in this one, I mean, this is the least impressive that his body has been in the films that we have seen him in. Um, I went with a six because, you know, he's still, he's older, but he... He's still all right. It's not like he's fat, but he's definitely got a little belly. And I'm not going to quibble with this. You know, it's like it's he's no. Yeah, yeah, we can't. Right. Okay, so here we are to. Oh wait, did we miss? We missed. Oh, I missed out. Sorry, I missed out. I missed out too. I missed out. Okay, so clothes. So I'm giving Ryan Reynolds a six because he wears clothes in the movie. A six. All right. Find me, find me a, something where Ryan Reynolds like wears anything of interest in this movie. He wears. Clothes, I want to know what it. you said. I want to know what you gave him for buried and for Mississippi grind here, because I feel like you're undercutting me on purpose. <laughs> so I want to know it, you, because you better, because he's wearing a suit at the beginning. It's he's not looking a nice all fly suit, in though. his suit. He's that's not a nice suit. A suit's a suit, man. A suit. He's wearing a suit. What do you mean he's not a nice suit? So I what should just fucking... give him. So I've, I've already given him credit for wearing. I've already given him a lot of credit for wearing no clothes. So why am I going to give him credit for wearing some clothes? Listen, Tom Ford, just fucking lower your standards. Um, I for clothes, I I gave him a ten because I think the jacket is probably the most amazing thing. And I said I, I think it's pretty awesome. His clothes are pretty – I think his clothes are like the best thing about him in this yeah. movie, if I'm completely honest. His clothes are amazing. Um, his look is kind of cool. So you got to give him that. OK. So uh, now we got character and uh, character. Did we do charisma? Did we do char- – I don't – I've gotten mixed up now. I think I – yeah, I think I jumped – I think I missed a bunch. OK. I think so it, OK, charisma. Yeah, we'll go to charisma now. Yeah. What did you do for charisma? Charisma, I gave him a seven. Again, it's like, it's kind of the same as Smolder in acting. He's on autopilot. It's his general, it feels like he as is as charismatic as he can be while not really putting in much effort. Yeah, uh, for charisma, I gave him an eight because, again, it kind of fits into everything. Mm-hmm. But the charisma is all because of the Smolder, so eight. Okay, so, and then we're going to character. Yep. I gave him a five. Oh, my God, you... You're a fucking cheat. What? You are a cheat. Name me. Okay, I tell you what. I tell you what. Here, here is your thirty seconds. Give me thirty seconds on what the character 
of this of what this character is. I mean, because I've already talked about how it make he's just some how how like there's there's no arc that makes sense with this character whatsoever, and that it, Ryan Reynolds is actually somewhat miscast in this. No, it's it's pointless. It doesn't matter. What we need to do is we need to have an objective panel that judges this on the next versus thing because this is ridiculous. You. You're lowballing every single category by at least one, maybe two points across the board here. <laughs> every single one is at least one down, which adds up through six categories, what, maybe two. I'm not afraid. I don't know. I I'll, don't, give you, I'll give you. I'll give you another point on care. character. Why not? Because I'm a, I'm a baller. I can just do that. I can just throw a character. I can throw a point. At I don't you. want. I don't want a pity fucking point. <laughs> Take your fucking pity point back. Matter of fact, I'm gonna give you a point back. It's a five, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I can't help it if I worked the system better than you. Ah, oh, fuck you. Seven character, uh, rank and filmography five. I don't even care about adding up the score. You won by at least five points. I gave. I gave. I'm watching Yuva Bull. Films. I gave. I gave rank and filmography eight because that says mm. that says everything about Ryan Reynolds' filmography is that this can sit that high on it. <laughs> Fine, so your final it, your final your final score was a sixty two. So your final score for this round was sixty two. Is it? I I stopped counting. I don't care about final scores anymore. I don't even have you ever even seen a, a is it Uable, Uvable? Have you ever even seen one of his movies? I have. I've seen House of the Dead. Are are the, okay, what are what are, like what should I do here? How do I make my decision? <laughs> um I think kind of like maybe just go for what people Let's look at as the most entertainingly bad ones, perhaps. Okay. I mean, I'd recommend House okay. of the Dead because House of the Dead is hilariously awful. And in that, in a, in a case of that, I've actually watched it, so I could, uh, so you know, it might make for a better discussion point. I'm I'm thinking about changing my pick for next week now, just to fuck with you because uh, you cheated in this <laughs> final round cheats? of the bromances. Fuck you. Fucking okay, look. seriously, go back and show me where I lowballed you. I've already told you each one of them, man. <laughs> at least at least one point, maybe two. Every single one of them. I just you know body body should have been twelve. Cause... <laughs> I think <laughs> motherfucker. I just don't think you. I just don't think you understand the system well enough. Is the problem? Uh, I, mean, I think got, I thought. Why are you getting pissy you know, about think, this? You won the last one. I know. I think. I think I thought that he was more charming. And that it was a, I think I thought that the film was shitty because it was just a stupid rom-com, but I thought in my memory when I chose the film, I thought that their chemistry was better and I thought that he was more charming and, 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 uh, smoldery and charismatic it's, and shit like I think that. actually he right. would have done he, better with, he was, he was phoning it He probably would have done better with definitely maybe, but obviously that you didn't have the, you didn't have. That's above 50. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's that also would've, it. That would have been the one. You didn't play the game smart. Like I got my under fifty one out of the way to start off with. Yeah, I know that would have been interesting, but I mean, either way, it would have been the same total score, right? I mean, who knows, man? Who knows? Maybe you just need to play the game better, or maybe you need to pick a better. I know. Maybe you needed to pick a better bromance. Yeah, but he's the only one I want to bang. <laughs> so we will find out now if Austin takes revenge on me for. No, no, I won't. I won't, I won't, I won't. So I'm going to give you the option, though. Okay. Do you want to watch a prison film or a romance film? A prison film or a romance Same director. Oh, wait, I know what this is. I already know what this is. 
I, I can, can, okay, can I then choose it then choose it choose it by the name of the film if you think you know what this is okay let's watch a prophet oh nice brother because it's a prophet or rust and bone that was like that the, yeah I because you'd also <laughs> said you'd also said earlier that it was a foreign language film so you know mm. dude I don't think I could deal with watching rust and bone again it would break you. <laughs> break. Well, I think I told you this. I, I had the most viscerally uncomfortable experience I've ever had watching Rust and Bone. Like during the climax of Rust and Bone, I was like so tense, so like freaked out that I was like, if what happens it ha- is what I think is going to happen happens, then I'm just going to have to get up and leave because I can't I can't handle this anymore. You know, and it's like <laughs> I've, it's the only film that I've ever genuinely been like. I need to walk out of here because this is stressing me out way too much. You know, it's like mm. so. But no, I, I actually weirdly, weirdly, I was thinking about a prophet last night and I was like, oh, I'd kind of like to rewatch a prophet. So it kind of like it. It's yeah, no, I'm, I'm up for it. Let's cool. Let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. And I actually also, I, the first time yeah. I watched this because you recommended it to me because you actually gave me Rust and Bone on DVD to yeah. watch like Four years ago, or something yeah. like that, and then you said you got to watch Profit. So one we uh, maybe more than three years ago. Yeah. When his new his new movie, The Sisters Brothers, uh, which is a western with uh, Joaquin Phoenix and John C. Riley, is coming out this year. Oh yeah, yeah, I've seen uh, trailers for it. It looks pretty cool. Okay, so join us next week for a Profit, as well as me talking at length about how fucking awesome Mission Impossible Fallout is. Uh, in <laughs> In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter um, at uh, I Dig This Movie. Um, you can find my work at KiraSewitt.com. You can follow me on Instagram at Breaking Point Flicks. Been doing a lot of photography work lately, so there's uh, a lot of new stuff to check out. Um, Austin? Yep, hit me up on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden, and see what I'm up to there. All right, peace out. <laughs> <laughs>